You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Today, when science itself is becoming less determinate, it is perhaps time to return to a theology that asserts less and is more open to silence and unknowing. Here, perhaps, dialogue with the more thoughtful Socratic forms of atheism can help us to dismantle ideas that have become idolatrous. In the past, people were often called atheists when society was in transition from one religious perspective to another. Euripides and Protagoras were accused of atheism when they denied the Olympian gods in favour of a more transcendent theology. The first Christians and Muslims, who were moving away from traditional paganism, were persecuted as atheists by their contemporaries. When we have eaten a strong-tasting dish in a restaurant, we are often offered a sorbet to cleanse our palate so that we can taste the next course properly. An intelligent atheistic critique could help us to rinse our minds of the more facile theology that is impeding our understanding of the divine. We may find that for a while we have to go into what mystics called the dark night of the soul, or the cloud of unknowing. This will not be easy for people used to getting instant information at the click of a mouse, but the novelty and strangeness of this negative capability could surprise us into awareness that stringent ratiocination is not the only means of acquiring knowledge. It is not only a poet like Keats who must, while waiting for new inspiration, learn to be capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Karen Armstrong is the author of The Spiral Staircase, a memoir of her time after leaving a convent, The History of God, The Battle for God, Islam, Holy War, and The Great Transformation. Her new book is The Case for God. Thank you for speaking with me, Karen. Thank you. It's a delight. Karen, one of the things that strikes me about this book, this is really a book that in many ways at its core is about reading and the way we read. It is in a way, yes. Uh, it, it means that all reading is, in a sense, interpretive. Uh, when we immerse ourselves in a text, we have to learn to listen hard to what the author is really trying to say to us, looking for the underlying um, uh, messages that are coming through within the imagery and the, and, and the syntax and the uh, uh, symbols that are being used. Um, and similarly, when we read our sacred texts... Uh, this is an essay in interpretation. Religious knowledge, religious understanding has always been interpretive, right from, the, right from the very beginning. It's not a question of learning facts that are objective and the same for everybody, uh, but a way of, of struggling to find sense uh, and to find the deeper significance underlying the text. Now, you've been leading a religious life for a long time, and you talk about this in the spiral staircase. Um, 
tell us a little bit about what happened when you left the convent and, and maybe how that colors this book, because I think it's a lot of your experience back then really speaks directly to this book. Well, it certainly does in a way, because when I left my convent, I wanted nothing whatever to do with God or religion ever again. Um, and I certainly never had any intention of becoming a writer, let alone a writer on religion. And um, I, the idea of God sort of faded from my life. I had uh, tried to pray in the, while I was a nun, young nun and had tried to uh, sort of speak to a, a being out there who I thought would in some sense communicate with me and nothing happened. And so this God sort of drifted away from my consciousness and I found increasingly that that idea of a divine being out in the uh, ether somewhere who'd created the world and everything in it was untenable and so I just let it go. But then, after a series of career disasters, I, I found myself actually studying religion more, at first from a rather sceptical attitude. And my early books were not all that dissimilar from Richard Dawkins. Mm, mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, and um, I, 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 I... So, but increasingly, as I was confronted with the actual evidence uh, and, and having to... And reading uh, for over 20 years now, uh, about the great world religions, studying them all. I've had to revise that uh, dismissive attitude to faith. Uh, and I realize now how inadequate my earlier conception of God was. Uh, the traditions of Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, and Islam and Judaism all gave me back a sense of what the Christian tradition had been trying to do at its best. And that um, I found that, for example, that at the centre of the religious life in all these faiths was the ideal of compassion. Um, and uh, that one had to, as it were, put oneself on the back burner and learn to approach the texts in a different spirit. Not in the spirit of scientific logos or in the spirit of being clever and debunking, uh, but uh, putting that clever self of mine on the back burner and reading these texts in the same way as I would read a poem um, and as uh, in the way that I'd been trained to read poetry at Oxford, to apply that same receptive uh, spirit uh, to the reading. And then the texts started to speak to me in a new way. This means of reading is is not new. In fact, that's kind of the beginning of our of man's religious thought and you talk about this in the beginning of the book homo religiosus tell us who that man was well it seems that from a very very early stage uh homo sapiens uh 20,000 years ago uh even 30,000 years ago started to create religions at about the same time and for the same reasons as they created works of art and the two are linked marvellously in those wonderful painted, decorated caves in southern France, uh, which a whole labyrinths with, decorated with the most marvellous depictions of animals and uh, shamans dancing. And obviously these caves were used for some kind of religious ritual, uh, but expressed in terms of art, in terms of painting. 
Um, and th- and these uh, these paintings of Lascaux and all the other cabins in, in the region, I think there are t- some 200 of them, all bearing much the same imagery. Uh, they they are the first record we have of a, of a set of idea of human ideas, and they're, they're both religious and artistic. And art and religion are, are very closely allied. Religion has always um, expressed itself best in terms of painting or poetry or music uh, or, or architecture, indeed. And, um, and why? Because uh, art, like um, religion, helps us to find meaning in a hard existence. Our lives are filled with tragedy and terror. Uh, when we look around the world, and uh, certainly Homo sapiens lived in a very frightening world, uh, surrounded by large predators, prey to sickness and uh, immense suffering, and the dangers of hunting animals for food, um, and, um, and and the problematic nature. They were clearly uh, disturbed, as are many of the indigenous people today, like such as the Pygmies or the Australian Aborigines, they were clearly distressed by the fact that in order to survive, they had to kill other animals. This inexorable law of life that make there's something wrong with it, uh, that it's, things shouldn't be set up in this way. And religion and art help us to come to terms with that. Um, and uh, also to hold us in an attitude of wonder and awe at the world that we see around us. I mean, those depictions of those animals are still speak to us today. They are done with such tenderness and respect and love and make you see the animal species as uh, something utterly wondrous. In the British Museum, we have a, 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 a little sculpture of, from that time uh, done from about 20,000 years old of a reindeer swimming. Uh, and uh, in the British Museum, they put uh, a, a picture, a photograph of a reindeer swimming, and you see the tenderness and observation of that Paleolithic artist. Extraordinary. So, uh, right from the beginning, therefore, religion is not answering our scientific questions about how did the world come into being. That's a question for science. Uh, religion is asking us to, kick, to kick, consider these problems that always occur to human beings that we're still talking about the same kind of things why is life filled so filled with pain what is the nature of happiness uh, how do we uh, respect other life forms um, and uh, what is the meaning of our mortality these are questions we ask again and again and again never find conclusive answers but this is what it is to be human and the religious quest therefore, is helping us to deal with those aspects of life that are not capable of easy rational solution. And one of the things that these caves also tell us is they are not just like open galleries that you could walk <laughs> into. This is achieving these states is a, is a, requires some work, doesn't it? It's absolutely hard work being religious. Uh, and today we think religion should be easy, that you can pop into church and uh, sing a few hymns and chant a few creeds and and that's it. Um, or similarly, you know, pop into a yoga class once a week for half an hour. This is not religion. These caves uh, are some some of these labyrinths, under, underground labyrinths, uh, are extremely dangerous. 
uh, it, it can sometimes take an hour of crawling through the depths of the earth to get to the core of these sanctuaries. Uh, when you go into the caves, I mean, you're, you're something like uh, 80 feet and, uh, into the hillside and 65 feet below ground level. And the darkness is absolute. Absolutely. You know, people, visitors say that you're absolutely blanked out. You can't uh, sort of in an utterly disorienting way. And that is uh, that's the characteristic of all these caves. They, the Paleolithic people and the artists who painted these things had to crawl through this darkness. Uh, and it, the darkness uh, tells us something important. A religious experience, need you have to put aside the thinking that belongs to the world of light and the upper world. And, and, and the darkness symbolizes that. You're now entering a new state. And there's one cavern in particular where uh, visitors have described the terrifying experience of having to crawl uh, th through a tiny tunnel a mile, uh, a, a foot high, uh, with all it, in this pitch darkness for about a mile until you get to the innermost heart of the sanctuary, which is where you suddenly come out the other end into a large underground hall and the walls are covered with these incredible engravings of animals and uh, a dancing shaman. And uh, so the, the, the experience of religion is hard work. And one of the things that I wanted to point out in this book is that religion is not a matter of believing a whole set of doctrinal facts. Uh, it is a matter of practice, of doing things. Um, and religion is a practical form of knowledge. Uh, that kind of practical knowledge got slightly downgraded at the time of the 18th century Enlightenment in mm. the West when we started making thinking much more rational and notional and truth was seen as a more notional thing, abstract thing. But there are certain activities that you can't acquire uh, by reading a text or thinking about them. You can't learn to drive a car simply by reading the rules of the road or studying the, the car manual. And you can't learn to dance or, or how to play a musical instrument without hours and hours and years and years of hard, disciplined practice. A dancer doesn't just go onto the floor and immediately turn a set of beautiful pirouettes. Uh, but if she perseveres, she may, with, through dint of hard work and diet and bleeding toes and all the terrible things that dancers put up with, she may be able to move with unearthly beauty that seem to defy the laws of the human body. And in the same way, religious men and women through the ages, some of them, have become, as it were, virtuosos of the spirit. And by constant dint of constant practice, they too achieve uh, feats of mind and heart uh, that... Uh, seem beyond human capacity and th that these are the people we revere like people like the Buddha or we may all know people like that in our own lives uh, who've been icons of uh, what it is to be a human being uh, someone who is filled with compassion who is able to endure pain and suffering with serenity feeling that pain and suffering but not becoming bitter or uh, angry 
uh, someone who is open to others. And if you if you do that, if you get rid of that ego that impedes us from our best selves, you discover new capacities of mind and heart, just as the dancer or the gymnast discovers new uh, dimensions of the human body. Uh, this is a process, I think, a state you call ecstasis. Ecstasis, yes. Uh, the, that's a Greek word in origin, ecstasis. And it, it, it does not imply uh, a sort of uh, exotic trance or visions or anything of that sort. That's a rather vulgar uh, understanding of ecstasy. Uh, ecstasis, the word means stepping outside. Uh, and it means stepping outside the self. Uh, our lives are bound with selfishness. They have to be. We're, we're programmed to survive. And when those uh, Paleolithic Stone Age men and women came out of their caves, uh, the world was frightening and they had to look out for number one and their, uh, and their families and their tribe. Uh, and that, that is deeply ingrained in us, so deeply ingrained that if we stand outside that self, we enter a new phase of con. Of, of consciousness. We enter in, we see things differently. Yoga, for example, uh, which people often use today as simply an aerobic exercise or go to yoga because they want to feel more peaceful and content with themselves. Uh, classical yoga, however, the sort that brought the Buddha to enlightenment, was not about feeling good about yourself or losing weight. It was a, an exercise that you had to practice again for hours at a time, uh, hours every day, uh, to dismantle ego. So that you, and, and people who do that, uh, say that uh, even once they've got outside ego, even the most humdrum object reveals unexpected qualities. Because you're no longer looking at it through the prism of selfishness. What um, Do I like that? Am I attracted to it? Uh, what can this do for me? Uh, these things that immediately occur to us when we hear a piece of news or see an object. How can I get that? Is this threatening to me? You get outside that, uh, you see the world in a different way. Uh, and But it, it's, it, it's extremely difficult because we are creatures that are deeply selfish. But if we get outside the prism of selfishness, we discover an enhancement, a different kind of humanity. One of the things you talk about, and I think that's really interesting in this book, are the, is the creation of the early biblical texts mm -hmm. and, and the way that those were first interpreted. They, they, they weren't seen as something like a newspaper, were they? No, and they weren't supposed to be factual. Uh, these, uh, and nobody would have read the first chapter of Genesis as a literal account of the origins of life, for example. Uh, these are um, ways of thinking about those deeper and more problematic aspects of our existence. Um, a creation story in the ancient world uh, was not about, uh, you know, the, the beginning of the universe. Uh, because they knew, these people weren't stupid, they knew that nobody could understand possibly uh, how, how the world had come into being from nothingness. Uh, but uh, the creation story was therapeutic. Uh, it was telling us uh, how, to, um, how to be creative ourselves, what we must do to be creative ourselves, uh, about the immense effort that was required to keep society uh, whole. 
uh, and indeed to keep the cosmos in balance. Men and women and gods had to work together to keep this fragile eco-structure together. Um, and the first chapter of Genesis, for example, was written during the uh, Israelites' exile in Babylon in about the 6th century before Christ. And uh, the uh, it's a gentle satire on Babylonian religion, which must have been balm to the bruised spirits of the exiles. And also, uh, it's a vision of everything being in its right place, that God puts separates sea and land and the creatures are put in their proper place. And this, again, would have been healing to a displaced people. But it wasn't the only creation myth. Uh, nobody was required to believe in it uh, because we know that other exiles preferred a much more violent uh, creation story, which, like other shows, Yahweh, like other uh, Middle Eastern gods, uh, bringing the world into existence by fighting a sea monster. Um, and the, so there was never any uh, sort of um, uh, definitive version of, 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 of a myth like creation. And people were more interested in uh, when they wrote about the past, when they wrote about past events, of um, saying what these events had meant rather than uncovering what had actually happened. Our historical writing uh, has, since the 18th century, which developed a kind of scientific history, is intent above all in discovering the actual sequence of events and being as accurate as possible. Now, uh, and it, and it's great. I mean, I'm not knocking that. This is marvellous, uh, marvellous discipline and, and illuminating in its own way. But this is not the kind of history that the biblical writers were attempting. And each, and we know now from the way the Bible is put together, that there are, it's not just one voice, the, the editors put together texts widely ranged in centuries uh, which often contradict one another, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, which offer a new uh, version of events, uh, which says, no, I don't like that. Uh, and you see, for example, in the very earliest text, two different strands, one from the north of Israel, one from the south, both have a very different take on Israelite history. Uh, in the south, they see Abraham as the great figure, and they don't think much of Moses. In the north, where Moses is more popular, they don't think much of Abraham. Um, and and similarly, later you have a whole strand of uh, people the, the, known as the Deuteronomists who have an entirely different, much more aggressive notion of truth, much more rational in a way too. Uh, but they're contradicted later by the priestly uh, code, uh, which often includes uh, the text we don't read much like uh, Numbers and Leviticus, but which is all about reconciliation. And it's the priestly code that... Uh, um, revises the whole idea of uh, the creation story. The first chapter of Genesis, 6th century priestly author, uh, who is talking about reconciliation too, in this, just as he is in the laws of Leviticus and Numbers, uh, and very unlike the Deuteronomists who came earlier, who were all about killing enemies, the enemies of Israel. He's saying, no, that's not the way to go. And what the creation story in Genesis is also telling us is that at the end of every day of creation, Yahweh blesses his creation. Uh, and he looks at all he has made. Uh, and he says it is all good. And every myth 
it has a practical uh, import. You've got to practice it. The priestly author is saying, this is the way to go. God even made the Babylonians. Uh, we must, uh, you know, the way to go is to bless all God's creatures and rest calmly on the Sabbath, just as Yahweh did. Uh, not be like some of the exiles who we know wanted to bash the ba Babylonian babies' heads against a rock and wanted to pay the Babylonians back for destroying their city and carting them off to exile. The priestly author says, no, that's, that's not the way. So there are many, many voices in Scripture, uh, not just one voice. And later there would be four Gospels, each with a very different take on Jesus, uh, not one. Uh, and so from the first, uh, there was a variety of voices in Scripture, uh, not one single monolithic um, message. I, I like the, the quote you attribute to Hillel mm. about the Torah, where, yes. where he said, <laughs> could tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's a story told by of the great Rabbi Hillel, one of the founders of rabbinic Judaism, an older contemporary of Jesus. And it said that one day a pagan came to him and said, um, uh, he prom would pro the pagan said, I will convert to Judaism on condition that you recite the whole of Torah, the whole of Jewish teaching, while you stand on one leg. And Hillel stood on one leg and said, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the Torah, and everything else is only commentary. Go and study it. And that's an extraordinary story. Uh, the, it, it's it, the, 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 the creation of the world, the doctrine of one God, the exodus from Egypt, uh, the promised land, all these things we think essential to Judaism are just commentary on the golden rule. Don't do to others what you wouldn't like them to do to you. Uh, a, a maxim that has been developed in every single one of the major world religions and seen as the essence of faith. Um, and it's also about reading scripture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So he then says, go them. and study it. And the early rabbis of the Talmudic period, uh, when, who, at a time of great distress when the Jews had lost their temple uh, and Judaism had been a, a religion based on temple worship, now that temple was gone and you couldn't, couldn't be replaced. And they developed instead a study, uh, a religion based on the study of texts and the practice of loving kindness. Um, and that Hillel is saying, now you read scripture and make it a commentary on the golden rule. And you see the rabbis not sticking to the literal meaning of the text in any way. Uh, they took that seriously. But then they said scripture is, is new and we've got to make scripture speak about charity. Somehow, and even if that means twisting the original sense. This because, is the process of bricolage, right? Uh, yes. And, uh, and, and midrash. Midrash, uh, which, which uh, is, uh, means investigation, going in search of something that is not immediately self-evident. Uh, you've got to study it. And they all, the rabbis, stress the importance of reading Scripture in a compassionate way. Uh, and so uh, you, the great rabbi Akiva said that love of God and love of neighbor was the pr general principle of the law, the central principle of Torah. 
um, and only one rabbi disagreed. Uh, and he said that it was the simple statement, uh, this is the, big, this is the uh, roll call of the descendants of Adam. Why was that important? Because it showed that the human race was one. Um, and so later, St. Augustine made exactly the same point. St. Augustine is one of the founders of um, uh, the Western Christian tradition. He's revered as a major authority by Protestants and Catholics alike. And um, he said that if you, Scripture teaches nothing but charity, and you think, what? What about the uh, all those killing stories and, uh, you know, Yahweh's wrath and Joshua's slaughter of the hapless indigenous population of Canaan? Uh, and St. Augustine says, if any text seems to speak of hatred, you must allegorize it and make it speak of charity, even if it means twisting the original sense. It's, uh, and this practice uh, was meant to say it was meant to uh, be a sort of dress rehearsal for the difficult uh, uh, task of putting uh, a... Um, a compassionate interpretation on the events of our daily lives. Now, um, with the advances of science and especially Newton, Newton wanted religion to be easy, and science helped make it that way, but it also helped kind of undo it, didn't it? It's, yeah. And this is where our, um, our, our Western traditions uh, started to, I think, to go awry. Um People talk today as though science and religion were, um, have always been mortal enemies, and the the actually it's quite the opposite. Uh, at, during the seventeenth century, uh, the time of Newton, the, the and Descartes, the great pioneers of modern science, religion and science were best friends. They were passionately in love with one another, and Newton said that has wrote to a friend and said that when when he started to investigate the universe. Um, he one of his hopes was that he would find in the universe uh, what he said w something that would work for considering men with for belief in a deity, um, and he was convinced that um, that, that, that if you uh, looked at the at the marvelous intricacy of the universe, you would see a, a planner behind it, a divine planner, a being and an intelligent. And he said, this proves that scripture is right. There is an omniscient and omnipotent being who is, he says rather sweetly, clearly very well versed in mechanics and geometry. And um, now <laughs> the thing was that for Newton and Descartes, their physics didn't work without God. They could not conceive that this could have come about by chance or by natural processes. There must have been someone to, to kickstart the universe, and that was God. Uh, but of course, a, a few generations later, um, the uh, other science scientists like Laplace uh, found, were able to find a purely natural explanation for the uh, with, for the universe, and later still Darwin came along and found a natural explanation for life itself. Now, this wouldn't have been a big deal. Uh, in the past, St. Augustine again had, said, had laid down an important principle and said that if a scriptural text contradicts science, you must give it an allegorical interpretation. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and Calvin, at the start of the scientific revolution, made the same point. He said, uh, there are some frantic persons who are trying to impede the progress of science uh, and uh, because they think scripture contradicts science. This is nonsense. Scripture has nothing to tell us about science. Um, and the Bible, if you want to find out about astronomy uh, or cosmology, go elsewhere. Now, this got lost because uh, people were so, by in the 17th, 18th centuries, people, uh, Christian theologians and churchmen were so intoxicated by Newton's scientific proof uh, that they made this Newton's God the essence of religion. They lost the older habits of thought that said that God is unknowable and that the, the world, uh, our natural world, can't give us any proof of God's existence. People like Thomas Aquinas mm-hmm. would have been horrified to think that scientists could prove the existence of God. That is not, not what God is. Uh, but, by, they'd lo- but by the 18th century, 19th century, people had lost that habit of thought. They thought science is the only way to truth. And uh, so when Darwin came along, they were left without resource. And then the tension begins. Um, and really, you know, it could all have been, uh, if, if people look back on how uh, religion used to be and how people used to think about God. Uh, In it, terms of art no more problem. than science. In terms of art more than science. Uh, and uh, and as, as, as God lies beyond the power of speech, Mm. Religion is about transcendence, uh, and transcendence means climbing beyond to a new phase form of of understanding and knowledge that we that words can't express. Music does the same thing. Music segues a very rational art. Music is it's based on mathematics, but it takes us into a form of knowing that is not based uh, on reason or logic. And it's very difficult to say what a Beethoven quartet is about. You can't put it into words, but it is telling us something uh, profound. And religion should be like that. A, a modern theologian says that uh, theology is speech that becomes silent, like a poem or like the moment in a symphony. You won't know when the last notes die away and bef- there's a beat of silence in the hall always before the applause starts. It has led you into silence. Now we use talk about God as scientists and we read our texts as though they're supplying literal information. Uh, and that's not the purpose of these texts and it's, it's not the purpose of religion. Religion's not supposed to be about those aspects of life that we can discover by our own unaided natural powers of reason. It's about helping us to deal with those aspects of our lives for which there are no easy solutions. And one of the problems of the scientific religion is it led us towards this kind of idolatry. Yes. And I thought it was really interesting that you began your chapter on on atheism with the birth of the evangelicals, which I thought... (laughs) (laughs) That's true, yes. That's true. I, yes, I, uh, there's a, a certain irony there. Mm-hmm. And it's the evangelicals. You see, at the time of Newton and the Enlightenment uh, fathers, uh, this natural theology, this, this looking at Newtonian physics and saying that's the proof for God, was a pretty minority pursuit. Mm-hmm. Um, it was for a few intellectuals. 
Uh, but the evangelicals uh, in the um, 19th century made Newton's God uh, 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 orthodoxy and brought it into the mainstream. And Newton's God, uh, with all due respect to Newton, he was a fantastic scientist, but not a very good theologian. Um, and he, 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 I mean, this is a projection of Newton himself, someone also very well skilled in mechanics and geometry. Uh, that's how he sees God. Now, when you uh, sort of make God just like a bigger version of ourselves, you've got an idol. And this... Uh, the intelligent designer. And when you hear Newton, all I could think about, I'm reading about Newton, I'm thinking, boy, this is like the intelligent design people yes, today. It, it is them. It, it is them. And and you have William Paley who comes along and mm-hmm. says, look around, you know, it, 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 you know the, the, the famous allegory of finding a watch on the shore and mm-hmm. there must be a clockmaker there. And, um, and, 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 you know, Thomas Aquinas said, the natural world can tell us nothing about God. We might be able to prove somehow that something uh, came out of nothing, something ha- happened, but what that something is, we have no idea. Uh, we ha- don't know what we've proved. He, in a sense, Thomas Aquinas, in his 13th century way, was saying, was, uh, I was saying, uh, he, he was thinking about the time before the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and scientists say, we, we don't know what, what that is. Uh, so, um, yeah, it, it was idolatry began uh, at that time where we made God into the supreme being and talked about proving that he existed. Now, Thomas Aquinas, Maimonides in the Jewish tradition, Avicenna in the Muslim tradition said, uh, you cannot say that God exists because our notion of existence is so limited that it cannot apply to God. And many Jew, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim theologians said God is nothing, with a capital N, nothing, uh, because God is not another being. We're talking about being itself, something that is that we can't conceive, because we can only think about individual beings, like you or me or a cat or a dog or a building. We don't, we can't contemplate being itself, but we, and yet we do seek to do. To, to do that. Now, um, as we come up into the, the 1960s and, you know, past the, past the Scopes trial, yes. which is the birth of the ACLU, is kind of interesting <laughs> <laughs> that you, you bring up all sorts of great stuff. You know, one thing that, that, that there's a word you use a lot in this book, incredible. Mm-hmm. And I think that our default definition of an incredible is something like a kind of unbelievable. But for you, I think it has a very different meaning. Incredible in like incognizant, in not credible, not believable. It's not believable. Um, and, and of course, we've made a fetish of belief. Mm. That's, uh, you know, this is one of the sad things. Uh, uh, the word belief has changed its meaning. Mm. Talk about that. Uh, well, um, to Today, we think of religion as primarily about belief. We often talk about religious people as believers, as though accepting certain creeds is the most important thing they do. But the word belief originally meant to love, beliven uh, in Middle English. It, it, it was related to the German liebe, beloved, or the Latin libido, uh, desire. And uh, it's, it's, it means involvement. Uh, engagement, as when you involve or engage with a person. 
uh, and uh, it, the when the Bible was translated into English, it still had that meaning of love, trust, engagement, commitment, and it um, translated the Greek pistis which meant trust, commitment, engagement. When Jesus is asking for faith, he is not asking his followers to believe that he is the Son of God. He's asking for commitment. Are you prepared to sell all you have and give up to the poor and devote your whole lives to the coming of the kingdom and live compassionate lives and be like the birds of the air and the lilies of the field and uh, sleep rough like me? Action. Action, exactly. Uh, and also the Latin credo, which usually translated I believe, uh, meant, meant comes from the Latin cordo, I give my heart. It's again a, a commitment, a sort of engagement, action. And there's a famous prayer by St. Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century, uh, credo ut intelligam, he says, and that's usually translated, I believe in order that I may understand. Well, as a young girl, I always thought that meant that first I had to believe all these incredible doctrines. Um, and then I had, uh, you know, as a result of this intellectual humility, as a reward, God would enable me to understand what it was all about. But Anselm is saying something quite different. Credo ut intelligam should mean I involve myself. I commit myself to a religious way of life, a religious behavior, religious action, then I will understand. And he goes on to say, and unless I so involve myself, I will not understand. Without living a religious life, none of these doctrines make sense. Uh, now, in the late 17th century, early 18th century, when our uh, understanding of scientific truth was becoming more intellectual, we used the word belief uh, to in, in its modern sense, uh, an intellectual acceptance of a rather dubious proposition. And that's what it's remained. So when people ask to believe things before they start to live a religious life, that's what we would call in England to put the cart before the horse. Uh, you've got, it's the other way around. You've got to live a religious life first, then you start to understand in the 1960s, as the whole world changed, we saw the rise of a new kind of almost uh, militant atheism, which you talk about. Well, there's all, there was also a sort of careless atheism where people just said, God, is <laughs> there's nothing there and who cares, as it were, um, because uh, God had become incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, because once you've got a God who is can be proved by science... It's a matter of time before science says, no, sorry, that God does, just doesn't exist. Something that Maimonides and people had known all along. Mm -hmm. um, and people just, uh, I think that there was just a dissociation. But you have had recently the rise of a more militant form of atheism, um, especially in the works of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris, which is based on fundamentalism. Um, and talk about fundamentalism because you have an interesting observation about that, don't you? Well, a few. I've written a whole book on <laughs> fundamentalism. So uh, fundamentalism is not, it has arisen in every single major world faith as a result of the particular circumstances of uh, our modern society. In every region of the world where a modern um, uh, 
secular society that separates religion and politics has uh, developed, a religious countercultural process pro protest has gone up, uh, has grown up alongside it in con conscious and deliberate reaction, and off at, and it's rooted in a profound fear. Every fundamentalist movement that I've studied, Jewish, Christian, or Muslim. Uh, believes that liberal or secular society wants to wipe out religion. And in their desire to defend the tradition, they often distort it. Um, and uh, fundamentalists, uh, especially in the Christian world, have are uh, sort of taking their stand on this very rationalistic God. They read their scriptures in an excessively literal way with a literalism that is unprecedented in the history of religion. Uh, and they ask, they see God, the, the statements of faith as literal truth. And I think, uh, it, and, and hence this whole evolution debate and the intelligent design and all the rest of it, uh, it's, it's, it's a very difficult form of faith to maintain, and hence the aggression, I think. Um, and so what else, what, what else did you find interesting in what I had to say about fundamentalism? Well, I could go on a, rambling on about it for a long time. Well, well, one of the things I like was your observation of uh, uh, Stephen Jay Gould and the two, two magisterium and, and, you know, the way that we can resolve this yes. in a reasonable manner. Well, yeah, exactly. St St Stephen Jay Gould, a great scientist, not a believer, you know, not someone with a particular religious axe to grind. So, look, there's no contradiction between science and religion. They're just dealing with different aspects of life. Uh, and people had always known this in the pre-modern world, as I show in the book. All cultures knew there were two ways of getting at truth. One was logos, reason or science. The other was myth. And logos... Uh, told us things about um, science, and it ha and us and it, logical discourse had to relate uh, to the real external world, or it wouldn't work. You had, if you wanted to create an arrow, you had to uh, observe the laws of motion, and and it had to work. There's no point in having an arrow that didn't work. It had to be so predictive. Uh, yes. Uh, whereas myth is about the more intangible aspects of life that we were speaking about earlier, about mortality, about about uh, fear, about uh, ha the nature of happiness, the, the nature of humanity, all those, uh, the nature of a good life, how, how we live, how, we, how are we human beings, things that we keep talking about and never quite resolving. Um, and But science can't tell us about this. If you your child dies or you experience a terrible uh, natural disaster, you want a scientific explanation, certainly, but you also need something to help us to find meaning in that or to help us to assuage the turbulence of our grief and dismay. And science can't do that. A scientist would say, I, I can't help you. Uh, I can diagnose your cancer. And I can uh, perhaps even cure it. But I can't help you with the grief and terror and, and disappointment when you get the diagnosis. And nor can I help you to die well. That requires the more intangible disciplines that we've been speaking about, uh, getting beyond self, getting, learning to live at peace with pain. 
Now, myth and uh, science have therefore, as Stephen Jay Gould said, very different jobs to do. And uh, to attempt to, um, you know, meld them together is a disaster. Now, one of the things I, I thought was very interesting was when you were talking about physicists, um, because it, it seems that um, we're, physics approach has a, is the science that has the closest approach to science in the way that you speak of religion. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's very interesting to me is this idea that maybe there is no theory of everything, yes. which is a very religious approach to science. It is, it? And, and you see the whereas the biologists, uh, you know, people like Dawkins. Not all of them, of course, but some of them tend to think everything's cut and dried and science will soon answer all our questions. What happened with physics is that uh, it suffered a major revolution at the beginning of the 20th century. It was confidently predicted there were about 23 outstanding problems in Newton's physics. And once we'd sorted those out, we'd know it all. 20 years later, you have Einstein, you have the quantum mechanics that completely overturns uh, Newton's world. And was accepted on faith at first. And it, of course. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and Einstein. Ironically. And Einstein's theory uh, couldn't be proved. You know, there was one particular prediction that he made, you know, that they hadn't got the instruments or the technology to prove it at the time. But scientists still had faith in it Mm -hmm. and they worked with it like just as religious people uh, have trust in their doctrine, pistis, and work with it to create, you know, a sort of different kind of enhancement of being. And they worked with it. And finally, they someone said to Einstein, you know, what if the laboratory tests don't prove your theory? He said, who cares? You know, the theory is right. (laughs) Who cares about the the experiments? And um, so so and and now the uh, uh, physicists, people like Paul Davis, for example, as Mm -hmm. well as Einstein himself, find enormous joy and wonder in looking at the unknowable. Uh, they're able to, to live with it and find it a source of absolute wonder and awe. In a sense, physicists today are like mystics. They are uh, sort of look, making us look at the dark world of uncreated reality. It's um, apophatic reasoning you talk about that. Explain what that is. That's well, a- Apophatic, it, it, the word is a, a difficult one if you, if you don't know your Greek and Latin, and it means wordless, speechless, <laughs> without speech. Uh, and, and religion is apophatic. It is, uh, it, it is as I've said, uh, leading us to, into silence, in, 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 into what lies at the other side of speech. Whenever we speak, we become aware of the difficulty of expressing ourselves. Uh, you know, as a writer, you're constantly trying to say something or to write something clearly. And you're always aware that you're not quite doing it. There's always something uh, that and uh, that sensitivity to the limits of language uh, help us to realize that language has limits. The, 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 and I think a model of authentic, apophatic wordless um, religious discourse was created in India in the 10th century before Christ. The people of India are always the great pioneers of religion. They're the geniuses. We're, we're better at science in the West. They are the experts in religion. And they 
um, in the 10th century before Christ, they developed what they called the Brahmodya competition. And uh, the pr priests would go out into the jungle and they'd make a retreat uh, to, uh, to enter a different mode of consciousness, different from the logos-driven, rational way in which we conduct business, the more receptive modes of thought with which, like in the same way as we approach poetry or music, listen more diff in a different way. And they were in the, in the jungle, they would... Uh, meditate, and they would practice yoga breathing exercises and fast. Then they'd come back <clears throat> and the competition would begin. And the challenger uh, he would start off. The, the, the object of the competition was to find a way to define the Brahman, the ultimate reality that lay beyond the gods. It was absolutely indescribable. And so he would try, and he'd been thinking about it in the forest all that time, to find a formula of words that would define and sum up what the Brahman was. And he would make this very learned and poetic statement. And the others would have to listen, and they'd have to build on that and reply to it in kind, but take it further. And so it would go on back and forth, one definition, another. And the winner was the person who reduced everybody to silence. And in that silence, the Brahman was present. It was experienced suddenly. Uh, and the it was, Brahman was not experienced in the wordy definitions. It was experienced in the stunning uh, realization of the impotence and helplessness of speech, of the inadequacy of speech. And in the book, what I try and show is that Christians too, Jews, Muslims, all developed similar uh, rituals, using words, using spiritual exercises to lead us to that moment of silence uh, when you say, oh, and there's nothing more to say. Or like when you listen to a great poem and uh, you, you, you just sort of, uh, you just realize there's nothing more to, to be said and you can't say this in any more clear, logical way, but there's a moment of awe or wonder, just as there is at the end of the symphony. Karen Armstrong is the author of The Case for God. Thank you for speaking with me, Karen. Thank you. It's been a delight. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.